things are like right now, uh, but no matter the time, there's no better time than now to grip to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to study part two of our, of our sermon series that we began last week. Let him hear, speaking of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, 2, and 3. Before we do that, uh, let's just pray to our solid rock. All right, let's bow our heads. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity once again on this, your Sabbath day, to be gathered in your house with your people around your word. And we long to hear from Jesus today. We pray that this book that we hold in our hands would not just be ink on paper, but the living voice of a living God speaking to our living reality today. Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit that you have promised is the Holy Spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. And we ask that no matter what our circumstances, whatever times that we are experiencing right now, that we would know for certain that it is now, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to cling to the solid rock. And so we pray that you would be just that and more. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Revelation. Let's open together. Revelation chapter 2, and we're just going to sit on the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. This is, this is part two of our sermon series. As I said, let him hear. Let him hear. That's a phrase that is oft repeated in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation because God wants us to hear the messages of these churches. These were seven groups of individuals, seven groups of believers in the province of Asia Minor there in Rome. There were people living in the first century. There were believers who, who lived lives, who had struggles, yet their, their faith was still strong in Jesus. And in these messages, the Spirit is speaking, and in each of these messages it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, if you're in the book of Revelation chapter 2, go ahead and say, Amen. All right. I would suggest if you have paper, feel free to start taking notes. Things that you want to memorize, maybe you're in the habit of even underlining in your Bible. And maybe you want to remember key phrases or write down uh, cross-references or what the, whatever the case might be. But this is our time to really chew on the bread of life. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And the Bible says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now you may remember that last week when we looked at chapter 1, this began with a vision of the risen Christ. This was not a vision of the Lamb of God who was hanging upon Calvary, but this was a vision of the risen Christ serving in the heavenly sanctuary. He was the high priest. And John, and just like every other believer at that time in the first century AD, by the way, I'm not sure if you're aware of this history, John was the last man standing, so to speak. He was the last apostle, the last of the 12 apostles that was still alive. And at the time of this writing, John was an exile on this island called Patmos. He, he, it was a modern-day Alcatraz. And, and John was there on the island of Patmos. He was the last of the 12 apostles. It was around the year 90 A.D. And the believers who had picked up the message from those original apostles, they were strong. They were fervent. But as they saw one more of them standing, what was going to be his destiny? They not only wondered what would be the destiny of John, the apostle, but what would be the destiny 
of Christ's church? That's what the question was on their hearts and minds. Are things really going to make it? Are things going to last? And the vision of, or the revelation of Jesus that is first given to John the Apostle is a revelation not of Jesus as a conquering king riding on a white horse, but as Jesus as the heavenly high priest who is walking in the midst of what? Does anybody remember? The candlesticks or the lampstands, right. In other words, it's Jesus walking in the midst of his people. What the people at that time, trembling in their faith, uncertain about their future, what the people needed to hear was that Jesus was with them. What the people needed to hear was that Jesus was the, was the high priest who is tending carefully over each of their flames. Whether it's flickering this way or that way, Jesus, the high priest, was going to make sure that they weren't extinguished. And so that's the picture of Jesus that the church back then needed to hear, and I wonder how many of us today need to hear that too. Speaking of uh, uh, an anchor that clings to the rock, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, the author of Hebrews tells us that we have an anchor of the soul. And you know who that anchor is? It's Jesus Christ himself, specifically a high priest who has gone into heaven as a forerunner for us. Friends, you need to know that you are anchored to a rock and you are anchored through Jesus' high priestly ministry. That's not just some flighty, uh, heady theology. The high priestly ministry of Jesus is what you and I need today and every day. Amen. Amen. And so here we go. This is the high priest who is now speaking to seven churches in their individual situations. Now, there are different ways to understand the, the seven messages, or I should say this. There are several applications. Three different applications. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. First application, I would say, is this. A historical application. When we look at the messages, we can understand that Ephesus was going through these circumstances in the first century AD. We can look at this church in Smyrna, this church in Philadelphia, this church in Thyatira, and we can understand different situations, I should say, different situations in first century AD. That's a historical application. The second application is this, a prophetic application. In other words, when we look at those seven messages, we can actually see not just different situations in the first century AD, but we can see different stages of church history from the first century AD all the way till when? Till now. That's right. Okay. Thank you. All right. We're, we're in this together, right? Amen. We're on the same team. All right. So from first century AD all the way to now, all the way to the end of time, this is a prophetic application. Now there's a third application, and that's the, the application that we're kind of going with today, and that is primarily a spiritual application. A spiritual application. In other words, not just seeing different situations, not just seeing different stages of church history, but seeing different conditions of the heart. Each of these messages is describing a different spiritual condition. And as we look at these messages, you may see a mirror looking right back at you. <laughs> and if you don't see that mirror right now, maybe the church of Ephesus, what we're going to study today, maybe that's not your mirror right now, but it will be someday or it has been someday. And so, uh, these messages are universally relevant. They're universally applicable, because these are messages, as it says, let him who hears hear what the Spirit says, not just to this church, but to the churches. Amen? Okay, so here we go. We're going to jump into this, and it says, chapter 2, verse 1, 
to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is, um, maybe, maybe you remember some of the stories of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, there is a certain uh, experience that Paul has. He goes to a town of Ephesus for the first time. He runs into some disciples who haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember this story? Yeah, and, and Paul talks to them and says, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They said, no. He instructs them more in the way of the Lord. This is all in Acts chapter 19. You can check this out sometime this afternoon. And, and Paul spends significant time, actually about two years, there in Ephesus, and it says that the whole region became disciples of Christ because of Paul's ministry and the 12 that he started with right there. Now, if you keep reading in Acts chapter 19, there are some pretty strange stories that take place. Maybe you remember one of these stories about seven sons of Sceva. Does that ring a bell to anybody? This is in Acts chapter 19. And these seven sons, they were exorcists by trade. And they saw what Paul was doing and all the miracles that he was working. And they decided to try this on for size. And they went up to a demon-possessed individual and said, In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, leave. And the demon talks back and says, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? Whoa! <laughs> These guys weren't expecting that. And the story goes that the demon that was inhabiting or possessing this individual actually jumped on them and harassed them their way out of town. Scary stuff. You don't want to mess with the devil unless you truly are grounded upon the rock Jesus Christ. Amen. He's the one who overcomes the devil. It's not you and I. You and I, we cannot do anything apart from him. Don't, don't try to put up your dukes. <laughs> no, no, no. When the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, it's preceded by this. Submit to God. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Amen. Okay, he's the Savior. That's why they call him Jesus. Only Jesus can be Jesus. All right. So this town of Ephesus was really a dark town. There were spiritual, spiritualistic influences all around. In fact, after that story with the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19, it says that the whole town heard of this, and they decided, whoa, maybe we need to get our acts together, and they collected all their books on magical arts and practices. They collected all their books regarding pagan spirituality and superstitions. They gathered them all together, made a huge bonfire, and the narration in Acts chapter 19 says that all of the value of that was about 50,000 pieces of silver. Yeah, seriously, that was 50,000 days wages, all invested in these spiritualistic practices. So you can kind of get a, an idea of the character of Ephesus. Not the kind of place that you would say, uh, leave it to be, right? <laughs> Not the kind of place that they would want to be raised. In fact, there was a temple that was known um, for the temple for the goddess Diana, or Artemis. This was a, a pagan epicenter, okay? And this temple was so valuable to the citizens of Ephesus that when, when they realized that Paul was turning people to, to the true God rather than to idols, like the idols to Diana and things like that, there was a huge riot that erupted because in Ephesus was the greatest temple to Diana ever constructed. It was actually one of the ancient wonders of the world. Huge riot broke out. In fact, historians say that within 200 yards of the temple of Diana, it was actually an asylum for criminals. And so you can imagine 
that Ephesus was not only a dark place, but it actually embraced immorality, okay? So pagan influence, immorality all around, it was notoriously bad. On top of all of this, Ephesus was kind of in the middle of everything. It was a great port city. So any trade, any commerce that wanted to get to the rest of the area, it traveled through Ephesus. And so the Ephesian influence of paganism and immorality really spread all around. This was a cosmopolitan area, a wealthy area. It was a sports town too. Athletes and things would gather for the Pannonian Games. All kinds of things happened in Ephesus. It was the place to be if you were of the world. But, praise the Lord, that in the midst of this darkness, there is a bright spot (laughs) that here became the epicenter, not just of pagan influence, but here God used Paul and those original followers to actually create an epicenter for the influence of Jesus Christ. That's amazing when you think about it. These individuals had such an enormous influence that there were believers all around in that province. And so, can you imagine that if you belonged to the church in Ephesus, what kind of faith you would have had to live in Ephesus? Can you imagine what kind of strength, spiritually speaking, that that you had to exercise, not just to, to go with the flow, but to swim upstream against that pagan influence and that immoral influence? This is a church that really had their acts together, so to speak. This is a church that had spiritual backbone. Are we following this today, yes or no? Yeah? And so, this is a message to this church. What would this church need to hear? What would this church need to hear that was, that was trying to live in a godly way in a godless society? And here, when we go into the message, it begins with a picture, once again, of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you were to just sit on that picture of Jesus, it's emphasizing already things that we've seen in chapter 1, that he's holding the seven stars with which hand? Did you catch it? His right hand, the right hand of favor, the right hand of grace. This was the right hand, you know, you didn't want to be on the left hand because the right hand was the the favored position. And here Jesus, in his right hand, he's holding, what does it say in verse 1? What is he holding? He's holding the seven stars. The seven stars. According to chapter 1, if you just look up a few verses, chapter 1, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now that word angel in the Greek is literally messenger. So we can say that maybe this message was given, or that that Jesus is holding the the messengers to to the the seven churches. In other words, Jesus' hand is in control. (laughs) It's a picture of his strength. That word hold, it's talking about a firm grasp that will not let go. So it's a picture of a strong grasp. It's also a picture of an enduring grasp. That this Jesus will not let you go. And this Jesus who is in control is not just here to beat around a stick. No, this Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's there with us, constantly abiding with us. He's tending over us. So it's a picture of his strength 
and also of his watch care. Are you thankful for that kind of Jesus today? He's a strong God who constantly watches over you and I. Now, what does he tell this church that uh, this strong God who is in constant watch care over us, what does he tell this strong church? In verse 2, the Bible says he gives his assessment of the church. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. What are some of the strong descriptions that stand out to you just in those first, in verses 2 and 3? What are the repeated words that you see there? Patient, okay. Hard work, okay. What else? What else stands out? What was it? Perseverant, okay. So this is a church that gets to work and stays to work, right? This is a church that is laboring. Now, I am of the male persuasion, and so labor might have different connotations for females in this room, right? Okay, maybe I'm... (laughs) Now, labor, when we talk about labor, labor is intense, okay? Labor is intense, whether you're a pregnant mother or you're a working man, okay? Labor is going to, it has connotations of blood, sweat, and tears. These are people who are putting their back into it. These are people who are getting to work, and they're not going to stop until it's done. And Jesus is affirming them. He's saying, look, I know your works. Actually, the word for labor there is talking about that kind of labor that takes every ounce of strength and sweat, and you're just going for it all out, full throttle, nothing held back. This is the kind of people that you would want to hang out with, yeah? And this is the kind of people that you would want to lead in God's work. It says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. They've, they've had individuals cross their paths And it says that they have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. In other words, they're not only hardworking, they're actually, um, how would you say this? They hold to true standards. They're not just going to take things for granted, but they understand that, wait a minute, there is a warning that there would be savage wolves who come in and try to deceive and tear up the flock. And so this Ephesian church, This Ephesian church is is staying true to duty and true to doctrine. These are good things, yes or no? Yes, yes. Now notice in verse 6 also it says this, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now the Nicolaitans, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, It's the first time that it appears in the New Testament, right there, Nicolaitans. It comes from a Greek uh, conjugation of two words, or a contraction of two words, that are trying to overcome the people. They're destroyers of the people. And Jesus is saying, look, Ephesian church, you're doing a great job because you're not even accepting their deeds, okay? Whatever it was that they were teaching, whatever it was that they were practicing, the Ephesian church wasn't going to stand for it. And Jesus is saying, look, you're persevering in this. Now I tell you, it takes work to stand against the tide of evil influence. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's easier just to kind of lay down and let things happen all around you, right? It's hard to actually verbalize, wait, 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 this isn't what it ought to be. It's hard to actually call sin for what it is. 
It takes endurance, too, because it's not just a one-time thing. If you say that once, that might, that might have an impact for a second. <laughs> but if you say it over and over, if you keep standing, that's why this church is perseverant. Okay? And so you understand kind of now the characteristics of this church. They're working hard to stay doctrinally pure. They're working hard to stay morally pure. They want to do the right thing. And it takes work. So Jesus says, gold star for you guys, okay? Pats them on the back. But after he gives them this assessment, he now gives them this criticism. Follow with me in verse 4. It says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your what? When Jesus looks at this laboring church, he realizes that they've lost their love. And here's where we need to get very intentional and very focused. It is the tendency that when we labor to stand up for the right, apparently it's the tendency to lose our first love. Notice again in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That word left, it sometimes in the New Testament, it's actually translated as divorce. So there's a vow that has been forsaken. There's a, a certain state of spiritual health that has been abandoned. Now they were trying to do all the right things. They were trying to put up this barrier and this barrier. They were trying to win this argument and that argument. But it is possible that when we win arguments, we lose love. Am I speaking truth today? Yes or no? <laughs> It is possible to do all the right things in the wrong way. I've heard it said like this. When we are the most right, we can do the most wrong. Friends, Jesus is speaking to a strong church. And he's saying, you've left something. You've forsaken a vow. You've abandoned something. What was it that they left? It was that they left their first love. That word first. Immediately I think to myself, the love that they had at the beginning, right? You're, you're thinking chronology, you're thinking timing. It was the love that they had at the first place, uh, before they, they fell. And that's true. Maybe they began their spiritual walk with a great amount of love. In fact, when you read the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, it says that, that he has heard of their faith and of their love spoken all around. So yeah, at the beginning, now Paul wrote that letter in the Ephesian, to the Ephesians, what, maybe 30, 40 years prior to this, this vision. And so this church had been a loving church, and apparently in their stand, in their labor to stand for the right, they lost their first love. But that word first can also mean not just first in time, but first in in importance. Maybe another word for it would be not just first in time, but first and foremost. That love which was of more value than maybe their labor itself. Again, as I said, it is, it is very possible to do all the right things for the wrong reasons. That when we are the most right, then we can do the most wrong. And when we labor 
and we defend and we do and we try to hold these standards here and there, friends, that is important. Don't get me wrong. Amen. We cannot cease. We're not supposed to take a look at this and say, okay, maybe we should just, uh, you know, just let everything run rampant. No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. Are we following today? Yeah? Okay, please don't get me wrong. What we're saying is that there is a first or foremost priority in the eyes of Jesus. Your labor should always be an outflow of your love. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I do all these great things, if I defend here and I stand up for that, but I have not love for God or for others, friends, that is useless. That's not me speaking, that's the Bible speaking. And Jesus is calling them back. Wait, 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 wait. You've lost something. Come back. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so, and so, the prescription for this loveless labor, loveless toward God, loveless toward others, the prescription for this loveless labor, do you want to hear it? It's threefold. It's found in verse 5. The first one is remember. Write it down if you're taking notes. Remember. Remember, or actually in the original language, it's keep remembering. There's a continuous nature to that. This is something we need to keep, keep in the foremost of our minds. That word remember means call to mind. Draw it up in memory's hall. Uh, just keep picturing it. Refresh your vision. Well, remember what? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember that, that former love. Remember how it was when you began your walk with Jesus. Remember the most important priorities. Yes, don't forget what you're doing now. Don't forget your labor in the Lord, your defense over this and over that. Don't forget these things. But remember, first and foremost, your vows. Remember your commitments. Remember your first love. Friends, this is, this is something that personally spoke volumes to me this week. Jesus needed, or Jesus knew that I needed to hear this message. <laughs> and that in all my laboring, I came to a standstill when he asked me the question, Godfrey, you're really busy, but are you really loving? And I had to do some self-reflection and ask myself, wait a minute, in all of the things that I was doing, and all the things that I was investing in, and all the things that I was sweating over and anxious over and doing this, doing that, I had to ask myself, at what point was I ever motivated by love? Oh, heartbreak. Thank you for this mirror. <laughs> we call this a law of liberty. And so, Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen. Keep calling it to mind. The first step when we realize that we've lost our, our the first step for those who have lost their first love, the first step is simply to refresh the vision of that first love. Refresh your vision. Do you remember what it was like when you began your walk with me? Do you remember that? And some of us may wonder, how do I know if this message is really for me? Well, settle this question. If you can answer yes, then this is yours. <laughs> the question is this. Can you think of a time when your love for God or others was stronger and more fervent than it is right now? 
Can you think of a time when your love for God or others was stronger than it is in the present? And if the answer is yes, then Jesus is calling you to remember. <laughs> if the answer is yes, I can remember, and I, 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 I see that again. I'm bringing it to mind. Then Jesus wants you to hear the rest of the message. It says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And the next step is this, Repent. Repent. In other words, the literal translation of that is change your mind about it. Change the purpose of the direction that you're headed. You realize that there is something that you've fallen from. You realize that there is a first love that you have left behind, that you have abandoned, that you have forsaken. You're remembering that now. And in order to recover it, you need to make a decisive turnaround. I need to make a decisive turnaround. And Jesus calls this in the language of repentance. Now, whenever I think of repentance, I think of repenting from sin. And when Jesus is saying, look, remember and repent, he's actually calling us to sorrow over the fact that we have fallen. To sorrow over the fact that our first love has been abandoned. To recognize it as sin. And so Jesus says, look, if you can remember a time in which you had stronger love for me and a stronger love for others, the invitation now is to repent. Make a U-turn right away and recognize that the direction you're headed is not the direction you want to keep going. Amen. Remember and repent. And here's the third, third prescription, third part of the prescription. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do a U-turn. Change your mind about it. But look, there's, that's the decisive edge. The rest is the active edge. Repent and do the first works. So not just say, okay, that's what I want, but do something about it. <laughs> and what are we to do about it? Jesus says specifically, do the first works. Interesting that Jesus would talk like this to a church that's already working, right? They're working hard, they're laboring hard, but apparently their labor was not a labor of love. And so Jesus is calling them, repent, make a U-turn. If you can think of a time where your love for God was stronger than it is now, refresh that vision, turn to that vision, and do something about it. Do the first works. Now again, this could be first works as in time. In other words, the works that you did at the beginning of your conversion experience. Can you remember that time where you began to fall in love with Jesus? Can you remember what it was that, that triggered that, that commitment? Can you remember what, that, what it was that triggered the, the change and transformation in your life? Maybe it was a certain setting. Maybe it was a camp meeting or, or an evangelistic series. Or maybe it was as you were studying a certain story or a subject. Or maybe it was as you were singing a certain song or saying a certain prayer. And if you can remember that, then go back to those first works. Do those things that started your journey in the first place. Now again, just as we talked about first being, having a twofold meaning like first in time, but also first in importance. Do those works that are more important than the works that you're currently doing. <laughs> so maybe you're serving. Maybe you're doing, maybe you're defending, but you've not cultivated the more important works. 
What do you mean by that? What are the more important works? You know what story I think of? I I think of that story of the two sisters. One of them was Martha. The other one was Mary, right? Martha was busy, right? Martha was laboring, and she was working hard. But her sister Mary, that she wanted to help her, where was Mary? At the feet of Jesus. And when Martha comes storming into the room and says, Jesus, do you not care that my sister is not helping me? (laughs) Kind of points fingers in a lot of different directions, right? This Martha, who was working hard, had apparently lost, in the midst of her labor, she had lost her first love. Mary, I think, embodies that first love experience or that first, the first works. Yes, Mary was busy herself, but she was busy at the feet of Jesus. Friends, I wonder if there are times where we can be busy about this and busy about that, laboring for God in this and laboring for God in that, but we are not investing in the things that matter most, and that is our time with Jesus. Wow. And this is, this is good as we, as we even just start um, in, the next, in the coming weeks, as we start talking about ministry placement and ways to serve and things like that, friends, we want to serve. Amen? Yes. We want everyone to be joyfully involved in linking others to Christ. Yes. But friends, let us not excuse ourselves from the first works yes. under the guise of labor. Please, let's hold each other accountable to that. Okay? Why? Because when labor is without love, it is useless. And Jesus actually makes this point even stronger. As you read the rest of verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Notice, he's now going to make this a little more substantial. There's a warning here at the rest of verse 5. It says, Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Wow. Remember, the the picture of Jesus at the beginning of this message was a picture of of Jesus holding the stars in his hands, walking in the midst of the lampstand. Look, he he is strong, he is firm, and he wants to tend and he wants to serve. He's giving his watch care, but he realizes that when we're laboring without love, It needs to be removed. Why is Jesus so strong about this? Why? Because, well, it speaks to his priority of love. Okay? And I would say this. Because when a lamp is burning through their labor, when a lamp is laboring without love, yes, it can burn, but maybe it won't bless. And when it loses its love, Jesus recognizes the danger. Look, this flame is burning and it will hurt someone. And so let me remove this. This is strong language. Friends, <laughs> repent. Go back to the first works, right? Look, we want, to, we want to be ablaze for Jesus Christ, but not in the wrong way. We want to be ablaze for Jesus Christ, but not to burn people, but to bless people. I want to... I want to burn ardently for the cause of Christ. I want to labor out of love, not labor without love. 
And Jesus wants that too. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And I love how Jesus just kind of sandwiches his criticism in affirmation. <laughs> There's a communication skill for you, by the way. If you're ever wanting to, to speak constructive criticism to someone, speak first affirmation, right? Then the, the, the challenge that, that you want to see corrected, and then again, remind them how much you appreciate them. It's an affirmation sandwich. You like that? Jesus models this very well for us. It's a good, good communicator there. But in verse 7, Jesus gives us a promise to those who hear these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, realize that this change of going back to the the first works, this is not going to happen in an instant. This is an overcoming experience. It says, to him who overcomes, to him who is victorious, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. Friends, the promise is nothing short of eternal life. And I love the fact, I love the fact that what's emphasized is that Jesus is giving it. He's giving it. The truth is that this Ephesian church knows how to labor. They know how to work. They know how to get their due. But Jesus is saying, look, it's not about what you can do, but what I've done. (laughs) I want to give this to you out of grace and favor, not because you've earned it, but because I have purchased it. Wow, one amen out of all. (laughs) Friends, the kingdom of God, the gift of eternal life, is not because you have labored hard, but because he has. And the very fact that it says, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, that word paradise is only used three times in scripture, once right here, once in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about being taken up into vision, into the paradise of God. And then a third time, the first time, I should say, is in Luke 23, when Jesus turns to the thief on the cross, and he says, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, if that's not a marker of grace, I don't know what is. <laughs> Anytime you hear the word paradise, you need to know that it's not because of what you do, but what he has done. Think about that. The thief on the cross did nothing but simply say, you are the king of kings. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It wasn't because of his labor. It was because of his faith in what Jesus has labored for. And so this Ephesian church that works, this Ephesian church that stands for the right This Ephesian church that is true to duty as a needle to the pole, this Ephesian church needed to know that they have left something even more valuable than their labor. And it was their first love. And so today, friends, how is it with us? I pray that we would be a laboring church. I pray that we would be a persevering church. But even more than that, Jesus longs for us to be a loving church. That we would do these works without neglecting the first works. The first in time and first in importance. Friends, let us labor out of love, not labor without love. Let us remember, therefore, from where we have fallen. And may we repent. If we can think, and if we refresh that vision, let us turn to it right away, without delay, and do the first works. Friends, is that your desire today? to remember, repent, and do. Amen. 
And if that's your commitment, the promise is yours. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life. And he'll be with me in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for this message that was given centuries ago, yet it speaks truth to us today. Father, I pray that you would give us repentant hearts. Lord, if we have left our first love, or if there is a time in which we, we, we will be uh, tempted and tried to lose our first love, God, I pray that you would bring this message to mind, that we would remember, that we would refresh the vision of what it is to have that first love. Lord, give us the humility to repent, to turn from the direction in which we're falling, Give us the humility and the courage to do the first works. Lord, we want to labor, but we want to labor aright. I pray for our, our, our own hearts individually. I pray for our households. I pray for our church family. Lord, may we recover our first love day by day, moment by moment. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, amen.